You're listening to A Senseless Death. In the late hours of November 7th, 2014, Zachary Lamb and his fiance made their way home after a night out. Somewhere along the short 2.4 mile route, a man started following them. Zach tried to lose the car, but it didn't work. They were followed all the way to the street in front of his apartment. When he got out to confront the man, he was shot and killed. Episode two, the red light camera. During the investigation, Spokane police went through hours and hours of surveillance footage at the restaurant where Zach met with friends before heading home. They were looking for signs of an argument or someone targeting Zach, but there was nothing. So police recreated the route they took home. I asked Cliff and Julie, Zach's parents, what they learned from detectives working the case. We knew that they had looked through lots and lots of video. Yeah. Trying to find this guy to see, did it happen at the restaurant? Did it happen afterwards? You know, they went to different businesses along the way and looked at videotape, but they couldn't see anything. But that's when he told us that they had taken the red light cameras that were on those routes and preserved them but they can't look at them and they can't use it for to go after somebody unless they have proof the other way, which I think is horrible. The possibility of footage from a red light camera was new to me. Maybe the car following Zach home that night was captured by one of them. I asked my sister Kelly if she'd heard about this. Yeah, that's what I'm curious about, too, because I know that uh, we have him on a red light camera and they won't bring it to court. So it frustrates me as to why we have this killer on camera and we can't bring him to court. Mm -hmm. And I just don't understand. If Zach did manage to run a red light on purpose and police could see the suspect's license plate in the photo... Why couldn't they look at it or use it in the investigation? In 2005, a law was passed in Washington state barring police from using footage captured through red light cameras for any purpose other than traffic enforcement. The ACLU was involved in helping draft this law. I reached out to them and was connected with Shankar Narayan, director of the Technology and Liberty Project at ACLU Washington. We were very concerned that we would just have cameras that could be used for any purpose, including general crime-fighting purposes on every street corner that would turn us into a really different society. So that's why we got engaged and we wrote really specific restrictions into the law that basically said, look, these things should only photograph your license plate and the vehicle and not the occupants Mm -hmm. only at the time a vehicle was uh, violating a traffic rule you're not supposed to be able to see the people who are in the vehicle. There shouldn't be video, right? Like all of this stuff shouldn't actually be happening. And on top of that, these can only be used for traffic uh, infraction purposes. Mm -hmm. The footage is not even supposed to stay around. All you really have to determine is, you know, was it a clear violation, right? And after that, you either issue the infraction or you don't, and the footage should go away. Eight years later, in 2013, House Bill 1047 was presented to the Washington State House Committee on Public Safety. 
The murder of 21-year-old Nicole Westbrook during a drive-by shooting in Seattle's Pioneer Square District prompted creation of the bill. Apartment security cameras nearby caught grainy footage of a light sedan fleeing the scene, but police were unable to check footage from the red light cameras for the license plate of the car. Seattle police believe Nicole was not the target of the shooting and was unknown to the assailants. Her case is still unsolved. House Bill 1047 had three sponsors who worked with King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg to draft the bill. One of those sponsors was Republican Representative Kathy Dahlquist. I met with her at her home in Enumclaw, a small community 45 minutes south of Seattle. 1047 really started with the King County Prosecutor's Office that came to me and said, you know, there's a a murder. And at the time, it was the murder of Nicole Westbrook in downtown Seattle that they felt like if they had footage from the red light camera that they would be able to solve the crime. Unfortunately, when the red light camera law was passed in Washington State, Uh, years ago, there was an agreement at that time between both political parties, Republicans and the Democrats. They agreed that it would only be used for traffic infractions, never to be used for evidence of a crime. All we were doing was amending that. So if you obtained a legal search warrant, that you were able to view the footage and not just view it, but actually use it to prosecute a crime, to solve a crime. And so we felt like we had really um, tight sideboards with, you know, the um, the requirement that you had to have a, a legal search warrant before you even could view it for that purpose. Law enforcement could. So we felt like it, uh, we would be fairly successful, which actually in the House in 2013 it did pass. It was not heard in the Senate that the chair of the committee at the time chose not to hear the bill, so it died. Um, I brought it forward, worked to try to get it heard in 2014, and uh, we ran it again through the House. That time we had a little fewer yes votes. Um, And again, it's an election year, so people are taking uh, safe votes for them and their districts. So we still passed, uh, I feel, uh, fairly overwhelmingly with 65 yes votes. Um, Again, it wasn't heard in the Senate, so it died at that point and nobody took up the cause again. While 1047 passed the House committee two different times, it was met with opposition, especially from the ACLU, who helped make sure the original law was very specific in its use. Once again, I'm back talking with Shankar Narayan in his downtown Seattle office. When 1047 came up, you know, Dan Satterberg came to the legislature with a woman who said that she had been taken to a police station and she'd actually watched video from a red light camera, you know, that showed occupants of a vehicle. What the prosecutor was saying is, hey, I know we wrote these restrictions in for good reasons years and years ago, but they're already being violated and we have some footage now. So could you just legalize that retrospectively, please? You know, we don't have to talk about all of the reasons that we actually put that statute in place. And that kind of ad hoc way of rolling out technologies, I think, is what's gotten us in a lot of trouble. Step one to us is talk about what it's for, right? Which in this case, when we did that, we said this is for traffic infractions. So if you want to change that, we need to start over and to say, look, 
okay, we want to put a network of crime-fighting cameras on every intersection. For my money, we just we haven't had that conversation when it comes to red light cameras. You know, we need to start with compliance with the laws we have and thinking about the reason that this law is the way it is. During my conversation with Kathy, I asked her about the ACLU's opposition. Good policy is just doing the right thing. And and I feel like that's what this is. This is not um, government intrusion onto people's privacy. Uh, the ACLU had advocated that this was government creep um, and, uh, you know, a, an infringement on First Amendment rights. But I absolutely disagree that... Uh, you know, you are driving a car on a public street paid for by public tax dollars and, uh, you know, something terrible happens. And if it was your child or your family member or your friend, let's hope somebody would be there advocating for you. Anytime you walk out in public that it's not, it's not private anymore, right? So red light cameras for this purpose would certainly have solved some murders, Right now, right now, today, detectives can get camera surveillance from any private owner of a camera. I just think it's deplorable that they're not able to use a you know, red light traffic camera that's paid for by the taxpayers, but they can actually get a search warrant and get it from private owners. I too wondered about this. There are cameras everywhere. Most of us carry them in our pockets. The cameras controlled by a government agency would be different, especially to certain groups. So I think our objection is let's not back into the conversation about using these as general crime fighting tools. We haven't said who's going to act differently. We haven't said who's going to be disproportionately impacted. And we need to get all of that on the table because there's a real story and a real history there that, uh, you know, has some really, <laughs> you know, detriment has had already detrimental impacts on certain groups of people. And we want to at least be honest about what systems we're putting in place. The idea is to effectively knit all of the public and private cameras in a city uh, into essentially a single network that will also have facial recognition incorporated into it so that you will be tracked from place to place moving around. Whatever you do in a public place may be fair game for the government to know but we don't think you concede that right. And we don't think at the very least that we should move forward with setting up that kind of a society until we have that debate on the front end. Legally, there's a lot of questions about what that means for the Fourth Amendment, right? I mean, to me, the nature of the technology means that even if you're not scanning, you know, your red light camera footage for facial recognition to recognize the people on it, at the moment it's collected, if you're creating a persistent record and keeping it around for crime-fighting purposes that could happen years and years later, you always have the ability to scan the faces, right? So effectively, you're, you're always uh, watching the people that are just walking around in public places. Most people have taken sort of a laissez-faire attitude around their data because they actually don't understand how valuable it is. We regulate how you know people can use and distribute money because we think money is a source of power. We do the same thing with voting because we think your vote is a source of power. But data is the Wild West, right? Our laws have not caught up to this idea that data is actually the most powerful thing we have right now. 
what really gets me about a lot of these systems is we know they're biased. We know they're biased and we say, well, we're going to roll them out anyway and we'll try to fix the bias later, even when the evidence continues to mount that you can't really fix the bias. The more and more studies you look at around this, the more consistently it seems that uh, it's historically over-surveilled communities and communities of color that are often on the wrong end of the bias. So it's always been activists, it's always been communities of color. You know, Martin Luther King was followed around by various federal agencies. And think of what you could do, right, if you have cameras in the control of those very agencies at every street corner. Now, there's an additional layer where you have artificial intelligence systems and connected databases that can tell not only that there's someone here walking around, but that the fact that it's you, the fact that maybe based on analysis of massive amounts of data that you're doing something that fits a pattern of a threat. Uh, to take just one example, and there are many, many, many examples of this, right? In New York City, after 9-11, they started using automated license plate readers. There were these systems that would basically <clears throat> hoover up every license plate of every car and essentially create a record of where that car had been. And it was supposed to just be for benign purposes, right? To monitor traffic flows, for example, things like that. And yet, when they, when, when this information came out years later, but they had actually been using it to monitor people going to and from mosques because they thought those people were suspicious. That's an example of, you know, the best intentions around the surveillance technology going horribly awry. But I think more importantly, they never had the debate on the front end about what these things were for. They never put the right safeguards in place to prevent those problematic uses from happening. And as we're building these surveillance systems of the future, we already know, right? There, there's, you know, it's probably a study every week that comes across my desk that analyzes who these systems flag off as threats. We have evidence that they've been used against communities of color, right? So we're building a society that does not look very fair and that puts certain lives more in danger than others. Uh, you know, for my money, I think we ought to, we ought to really deeply consider that. Weirdly enough, Kathy says this idea of government surveillance is actually one that brings together groups in the right and the left. I think you have more folks on the far left and you have those entrenched on the far right. And uh, those two um, sectors of political factions, I would call them, they actually agree on this issue for, for very different reasons. The far left uh, believing that it's an infringement on um, intrusion, and those on the far right believing that it is uh, government watching you. It's uh, black helicopters flying around in the sky. So I think uh, both of them are wrong, and I believe that uh, good policy and good politics really start from the middle. And there's a lot of good Republicans and Democrats that agree with me on that issue and on this issue specifically. If you just look at the state map, if you look at the map, that it mostly is colored red by geography. Mm -hmm. But there are the populous parts of Washington State are Seattle and Tacoma, um, a little bit up in the Bellingham area and Spokane. Just the downtown sectors is where the populations are. Um, so very, very, very small amount of blue 
And I think the folks that live in downtown Seattle don't really understand the political um, impacts to those who live in rural Washington and vice versa. You know, the people that live in, um, you know, the very rural areas of Washington don't understand the dynamics of what folks are dealing with in downtown Seattle. Not every person that is in Olympia is motivated by the right things. So there are those that need political fodder to get elected one way or the other. Instead of standing up on their um, reputation or their experience or what's right and being able to defend to their own political party what's right. In that four years, I mean, you can see it right here with votes on this one issue that you would think made a lot of sense, right, and was created by, um, that both Republicans and Democrats supported, that fewer supported in the following year, because one, it was an election year, and two, you saw the polarization begin in, not just in the country, but even in the state. The legislative cycle is built into two-year chunks for House members, right? They have to stand for election, or four-year chunks for senators, and it's just, you know, it does not uh, reward thinking beyond that timeline. You know, it, it means rather than really look at the basis of a system when the system itself is failing, you know, they don't do that. They just like to tinker and tinker and tinker until the whole thing just goes down in flames. This conversation is an overlay on so many other areas, like criminal justice reform. And that's why yeah. how you build the technology is incredibly important. And having a diverse set of people there with community perspectives will change the whole trajectory of how a tool gets rolled out and what it does in the world. And we should consider who's in Olympia making the decisions as well. It's not a very diverse legislature. It's not a very diverse lobbyist body either. Um, and, you know, if we were designing a system from the ground up, we'd want to have uh, the right voices at the table as well. I, I think we just, we don't right now. Needless to say, this is a complicated issue. While I wholeheartedly support the ACLU's position on protecting communities of color, the conversation about it in reference to Zach's case was hard. Zach was a young man of color. I mentioned this internal battle to Shankar. You know, it's not that I don't sympathize with the families who are in this position. I really do. You know, I think these are systemic problems, right? Like, they're systemic failures that, that we would like to see addressed. But, you know, in this space, with this set of tools that you know, it was really for another purpose. You know, if we open up that door, I don't see it closing, right? I see us using these things for all kinds of other purposes that we never talked about. Let's have that honest discussion with the right people at the front end. Then at least we have a set of values that we can rely on. I'm still torn on this issue today. On the one hand, I agree with the ACLU. We need to have conversations, ones that include the communities most impacted by the collection and use of data, before we draft laws using said data. But on the other hand, I obviously want a system where all avenues of available information can be used to solve Zach's murder. And I feel in this instance, House Bill 1047 was a reasonable amendment to an already existing law, one that would require police to obtain a search warrant before looking at red light camera footage. For me, it feels the ACLU's helping draft the original law and then opposing House Bill 1047 is perhaps myopic. 
if they have issues with the criminal justice system and their ability to properly serve search warrants, which I completely understand, I don't feel this is the best way to send that message. But if I'm honest, I can't tell if I have these feelings because of Zach's case and the circumstances surrounding it, or if the ideas in the 2013 bill are good. Do I want the government to be able to surveil anyone and everyone and naively assume they'll only use that power ethically, or do I just want them to be able to do it in this specific case? I discussed all of this with the Spokane Police Department. It has been four years since the murder, so personnel changes led to a lot of phone tag. But when I finally reached a detective overseeing Zach's case, I asked him what they could tell me about the supposed red light camera footage. He wouldn't answer the question directly, but said instead they wished the attempt to change the law could happen again. I'm not sure if that means they still have the footage from that night, though that's technically not allowed, but there is precedent for it, or that they're hoping it can help on future cases. Both times after House Bill 1047 was passed in the House, it never cleared the Senate's Law and Justice Committee. One theory is because of the chair at the time, Republican Senator Mike Patton, was very against surveillance of any kind. But years have passed and the current chair of that committee has changed. It's now chaired by Senate Democrat Jamie Peterson. In 2013, he was a representative in the House and voted yes on House Bill 1047. At the end of 2013, he was appointed into the Senate and later that year elected in the 43rd District, which just happens to be my personal district in Seattle. I reached out and asked him about the bill and whether he felt there were any options he could see in the future for getting it heard in the Senate, now that he was chair of the committee. He replied in an email back to me that he suspects it would still be a hard sell. <sighs> well, obviously, I mean, it has to be heard in committee. So there's a process. So you present a bill, you file it. And then uh, you work the process. You work your colleagues and you get everyone on board. I certainly didn't know there was going to be an obstacle in the Senate. It uh, takes a lot of time and money, actually. They, they estimate about $6,000 per piece of legislation that gets dropped in Olympia. So I don't take that lightly. That's the taxpayer's money that you actually want to bring something forward that means something. And a lot of times it's done for... Uh, political reasons. You know, you want a bill, so you have a message point one way or the other. To me, this was a bill for good policy to give closure to victims. I mean, this is, these are crimes. These are felonies. These are, this isn't a misdemeanor that we're talking about. Mere weeks before his murder, Zach was ticketed for running a red light while driving my sister's van. It's funny because the, I got yelled at him because he ran a red light in my van like two weeks before that and I got the ticket. And I was like, here's your picture. <laughs> that was you. Look at the date and the time. Because <laughs> everything you'd always, it wasn't my fault. It was me. It was always somebody else and I could prove it somehow or try. And that's how this theory started. Based on conversations Cliff, Julie, and Kelly had with Zach's fiance about his attempts to evade the man following them, and knowing he knew the cameras would take a still photo of the license plate and the car itself. Perhaps he was trying to get the assailant to run red lights to produce evidence. Or perhaps Zach was just hoping that if he ran a red light, the man would stop. 
Is there a chance the murderer was captured by one of these cameras? Yes. But the reality is that even if the footage existed and even if the law were to change, and even if the police were to somehow have been able to keep the footage despite the legal hurdles in doing so, the likelihood it would be admissible in court is almost zero. On the one hand, this is profoundly simple. Use all available resources to catch a murderer. On the other, this issue is one of many that are defining who we are as a people and what kind of country we want to be. This is both intensely personal and has far-reaching and potentially dangerous consequences, unintended or not. Painfully, though perhaps necessarily, it is a philosophical and legal argument that has real people, real victims, trapped in the very checks and balances designed to serve them. We could put a camera on every street corner and it would catch more crime than we can catch right now. And it would also catch a lot of innocent people doing a lot of legitimate things and it would change their behavior. We want people to be able to move, speak and associate freely. And the back end of these policing systems right now is not transparent, you know. So I, I think it's not necessarily a question of, you know, what's better or what's worse. It's just surfacing the choices that we're making and figuring out who we're actually privileging when we say we're going to open this up to law enforcement. This is why, you know, we need to have this conversation, right? We need it because we need to preserve our freedom. We need it because we need a fair society where some people just aren't simply being left on the bottom by dint of having the wrong data associated with them. And we also need it to preserve our democracy, right? Like, I think we're not going to have much democracy left unless we really start to grapple with this question of technology and values, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how are you tracked and surveilled in public places? Who gets that data? Do you know about it? Is it just going to sit around? Are you going to be recognized? You know, and this, these kinds of calculations, when these tools are just rolled out without that clear transparency, is what I think chills people from, you know, wanting to do things in public because they don't know who's, who's watching and why. In Zach's case, since there is no time machine to go back and change the law or go forward to a time where the law might be different, the little hope his family had is slowly being destroyed. The hope Zach may have had in documenting what ended up becoming his own death, and the hope his friends and loved ones have in solving his murder. This was a pinpoint of light that maybe, just maybe, the killer could be found. This is one of the reasons talking about Zach's story is important to me. I have to believe the shadow of this murder looms large for the person who committed it. And I have to believe there's someone out there with new information. Or perhaps someone who saw what happened that night but didn't, or couldn't, come forward back then. Four years later, even if the case is officially cold, people can still help. Just know, new information is not only still relevant, but could make the difference in finally finding justice for a life cut way too short. A Senseless Death is produced and hosted by Lindy Bustetz, mixed and edited by Chris Bustetz, music provided by artists from Artlist.io. If you have any information regarding Zach's murder, you can contact us and the Spokane Police Department on our website, asenselessdeath.com.